Good morning. If you're a guest, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope. And uh, we're honored that you're here, like David said. We've got a gift for you. Find out information. You can learn about discipleship groups. Um, get plugged in. Find somebody. Talk to somebody. Uh, we say this a lot. This is church, so we don't come to watch. We come to participate, and we would love for you to get uh, plugged in around here. Hey, we're starting a new series in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm pretty excited about it. I'm excited to walk through this book over the next couple months, and I want to encourage you. I individually read it as a family begin to read it. I sat with my kids last night and uh, got some sermon prep in uh, as I walked them through chapter one. Uh, I don't know if they appreciated it as much as I did, but uh, they're good. So uh, I want to encourage you, though, during the week, read Nehemiah, read ahead. Start asking questions, making notes, underlining things. Uh, we're very excited to walk through this book of the Bible, and uh, we're excited for a lot of reasons. Today, we're going to meet this young leader, Nehemiah, and we're going to learn uh, a lot about how we should approach burdens that God places on our hearts and visions that he calls us to live out. And we're going to learn a lot about how we should start that process. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But as we get started, uh, I also want to invite you to next Sunday morning. So you're like, wait, it's this Sunday morning. I know. Next Sunday morning's kind of a pivotal morning in the history of our church. Uh, we're, we're calling it Succession Sunday. And we want to invite you to come back. And if you've known anybody who's been a part of New Hope over the years that our ministry is impacted, invite them to come as well, uh, because next uh, Sunday morning we have uh, leadership succession. And it's kind of awkward to talk about it, but we just got to push through it. Uh, David, my father-in-law, has been the preacher here for almost 30 years, and he's going to be shifting into a new role on staff, and uh, I'm going to be shifting into the lead minister role. And so we're very excited. We've been planning this for two years. We've been praying heavily about it, and we want to make sure you know next Sunday morning is an exciting time in the history of our church, and we want to invite you to come back and be a part of that. But this morning, I want to start with a question. Have you ever wanted something so badly, but you had to wait for it? Anybody ever felt that? Like the anticipation gets the best of you. You know this date's coming. You know this time's coming. You know this experience is coming, but it's not here yet. All right? Anybody ever been to Disney World as a kid? You're like, we have to take them now. Thanks. But... <laughs> But I, went to Di I lived in South Florida growing up, so we would take a trip to Disney every once in a while. It wasn't as big of a trip for us. But we would get so excited about the date, and then we had to wait until that date arrived, and it drove us crazy. But in my life, there has been nothing that has created more anticipation or excitement than when my wife is pregnant with our kids. I, very few things in life have brought me the joy that being a dad has brought me. I love being a dad. I love everything about it. And so I get very excited when my wife is pregnant. My wife is actually pregnant right now with our fourth child. And so we're, we're really looking forward to early 2017 when this child comes. And so kid number four is on the way. Um, and we went to the doctor this past week. And this was so cool. We brought our youngest with us, uh, Luke. He's four years old. And he came into the room and he got to hear the heartbeat. And the look on his face was like, what in the world? You guys said something was in there. I didn't know it had a heartbeat. It was like, <laughs> he was so pumped. And then the doctor comes in the room, and the doctor is the same doctor that delivered Luke and my daughter Abigail. And so the doctor's in the room, and my wife goes, Luke, this is the doctor that pulled you out of my tummy. Could have been a better descriptor, maybe. But <laughs> Luke is standing there, and he looks at the doctor, and without skipping a beat, this is Luke's response. Thank you. <laughs> it was awesome. Even the doctor fell out, because he's like, I don't think... I've ever been thanked by the child. <laughs> it was really, really awesome. 
Coming out of the hospital and getting into our car, I started feeling that excitement. The heartbeat, the excitement of my kids. I can't wait, but I have to, right? I have to wait. The anticipation's great. It's only going to get uh, bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more exciting, but I have to wait. Why? Because I'd want this baby to be here as soon as possible, but that's not what's best for the baby. That's not what's best for what the Lord is doing as he knits this child together in my wife's womb, and, and it's not uh, the best for my kids to continue to prepare to have another sibling. What's best is that we wait, and oftentimes in the waiting, I don't learn the lessons that God wants me to learn because I'm too preoccupied with the end result. And so as we study Nehemiah chapter 1, that's one of the lessons we're going to learn. While we're waiting, while we're in this patient time of waiting for this vision we feel God's put on our heart, this thing that we think God's doing in our life, and we can see the end picture, what do you do in the time where he hasn't brought it to fulfillment yet? What do you do with that burden he puts on your heart, that vision he puts in your life, the mission he calls you to live? What do you do while you're waiting? And Nehemiah teaches us a pretty profound lesson about waiting uh, in chapter 1. But before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of the history because I think it's really important for you to understand why Nehemiah had a burden on his heart. Why Nehemiah was led to become the great leader that we know him to be. If you've studied your Old Testament, he's one of the best leaders in all of the Bible. And many books have been written on leadership and they quote Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is a great leader. But why was he a great leader? And that starts in the, the Old Testament. So if you had a Bible and you were to open it up into your Old Testament, you would begin to read the history of God's people. And God's people get uh, captive by the Egyptians, and they get held captive as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they're held captive for all this time until a guy named Moses steps up, and Moses comes on the scene, and he frees the people from the Egyptian captivity. And then Moses wanders with them as they're waiting, another great person to learn from about waiting. And Moses doesn't get to walk with them into the promised land. A young leader named Joshua gets to, he's, he's rose up, he rises up and he takes the Egyptians into the promised land, a land that the Bible describes as flowing with milk and honey, a very prosperous land, a land that they'd been waiting for for a long time. Here's the problem. When they arrived in the promised land, and you read this in your Old Testament, it had already been inhabited by cultures and by people that were worshiping false gods and living lives that did not honor God. And so over a period of time, the exposure to these people, the, the Israelites began to sway that direction. They began to worship false gods and practice things that did not please the Lord. And so the Lord intervenes with uh, your Old Testament, what's called judges. And he would send these great leaders and these judges would come on the scene and they would begin to call people back to God and the people would repent, which simply means they'd turn the other direction. They would, they would push back against the evil and they'd come back to God. And now they're in right standing with God and things are good and that's great until the judge died. And then a judge would die, and the people would fall right back into their sin, and so another judge would come, and then they would repent, and then they would live the lives God wants them to live, and then the judge would die, and then they would fall away, and then they would, uh, another judge would come on the scene, and it goes over and over and over again until finally the people come to God, and they say, we want a single leader. We want a king. And God says, no, you don't. And the people say, yes, we do. We want a king. And God says, if, you, if that's what you want, I'm going to give you a king, but I'm telling you you're not going to want a king. And sure enough, God, against his wise counsel, gives them what they demanded. They get a king, and a king by the name of Saul comes on the scene. Saul was a man's man. And you read through this in your Old Testament. He comes on the scene, he begins to lead, but somewhere along the way, he falls away. And as the king, he leads the people away. He starts to do things that don't please God. And finally, God removes him from being king, and he places a young leader by the name of David. 
into the role of king. And under King David's leadership, there's prosperity and peace. And it's a wonderful time in the history of Israel. He leads them to prosperity and peace. And he actually hands off a good situation to his son, King Solomon. And you read about King Solomon in your, New, in your Old Testament, and he leads, and he's a good king, and he leads through a time of peace and prosperity. But he, if you notice in his writings, he wonders about who he's leaving it to. And he's wondering, is this next generation strong? So he, he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, what good is wealth? What good is success if you're just going to leave it to a bunch of morons? That's a paraphrase, but that's what he was getting at. So what, what good is that if you just leave it to these, these no good leaders? And sure enough, when he leaves it to them, they begin to fall away. And there's this big rift, a divide in the people of God. And the 12 tribes of Israel... Ten of the twelve split apart, and they form what we call the northern kingdom, and it's called Israel. Ten tribes go north, and they're Israel. The two remaining tribes go south, and they're called Judah. So you have Israel, and you have Judah. And over a period of time, around 722 B.C., the Assyrians, they invade Israel, the northern kingdom. And they take over the northern kingdom, and they exile all of God's people, and they separate all of God's people. And they spread out all of God's people, and they hold them under captivity. Now, the southern kingdom fared a little bit better. You see, the northern kingdom had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, and eventually they were overtaken. The southern kingdom fared a little bit better. Something about those southern states. They just, <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. I don't want to, no emails. So the southern kingdom fared a little better. They had a good king, and then a wicked king, a good king, and then a wicked king. But eventually, about 136 years after the northern kingdom was taken over, the southern kingdom gets taken over. But it's not by the Assyrians. It's by a group called the Babylonians. They come in and they overtake the Assyrians and they rule the world at the time. And they exile all of God's people and spread them out. And this is in your Old Testament where you read about people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the fiery furnace and the lion's den, all under this Babylonian captivity. And they're pressed and they're oppressed for quite a long time, right? And then the Persians come on the scene. And the Persians come in and they take over the Babylonians. Eventually, there'd be this small little startup called Rome that would come on the scene and they would take over. They're not there yet. The Persians are ruling and they take over everything. And at the end of the book of Second Chronicles, King Cyrus, the Persian king, is led to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their ruins. Not all of them, but some of them. And so some of the Jews, after all of this, finally get to go home. And when they get home, they get on the scene of their home and everything's destroyed. And this is where we pick up the story of Nehemiah. Everything his ancestors, everything his people had built up had been leveled and destroyed. And now here's this young leader who's encountered with all of this history. We're going to pick up our story. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, this is November, December of the year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Now remember, they'd been released to go back and rebuild with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, right? So all of that, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, all of these exiles, some had survived, and he asks them about them in returning to Jerusalem. Now here's a side note, just a quick note. I want you to see the progression here. When Nehemiah gets this burden on his heart, we're going to talk about here in just a moment, it is coming from a proper source. 
I think many of us, we get burdens on our heart and we feel like we're led to do things and we haven't questioned the source. Where's our information coming from? He didn't sign on to Facebook and read a timeline. He wasn't reading an online blog. He didn't feel sick and go to the medical and Google it, like Google his medical condition so that he was... No, he went to someone who was on site, someone who had been there in person. They'd seen the devastation. They come back and now he asks them and it's from that credible source that things begin to happen in his heart. So this is the report they give to him, verse 3. They said to me, Those who survived the exile, they're back in the province. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, one of the things we need to understand moving forward is that Gates and, and walls were a huge deal in that culture, right? They were so important. In, in the book of Proverbs, uh, the writer says that a, a person without self-control is like a city whose walls have been torn down. And what he's saying is your life loses meaning and your ability to produce and do good in this world is, is like a city that the walls get torn down. That's what it's like when you lose control of yourself. What, he, what the Bible's trying to paint a picture of is this. Walls were a source of protection. But I want you to picture this. This is how I picture it. When the walls are up, the people inside the walls, they feel confidence. And when they feel confidence, they produce. And when they produce, people prosper. And when people prosper, people are prepared. And when they're prepared and an enemy attacks, they've got the walls and people with high spirits and people that are ready to go. But you tear those walls down and now they're sitting ducks. And now they are susceptible to any outside force can come in when you didn't have a wall in those days or a gate. And that, those people could come in and take over and destroy your land and take you captive. And now in their mind, what do you think they're thinking of? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Oh no, we don't have a wall to protect us from the next group of people that come to invade us. And so when Nehemiah hears that, these people are just hopeless and they don't know what to do and they're just returning to a place that has no protection and no hope. It says he, it breaks his heart to the point where he stops and he weeps. You see, the greatness of Nehemiah's leadership didn't start with a plan or a process. It started with a broken heart. See, the greatness that Nehemiah produced for God started with a broken heart, a burden for people. It wasn't even a vision yet. Think about that. He had no vision for rebuilding the wall before his heart was broken that the wall was torn down. He thought about these people and to think about these people having no hope and to know if they don't have hope, there's no way they're going to share the hope of God with the lost. And so these people must be built up so that they're equipped to go and be a witness for God. And when all that hope was removed, he sat down and he wept and he mourned. I don't know if you've ever been there. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had something sit so heavy on your heart that you couldn't, there's no plan, there's no vision, there's no process, there's only weeping. Because you're so broken over it. Have you, ever, have you ever had that broken feeling? If you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus, have you ever felt that for those that aren't following him? For those that don't know him? Have you ever felt broken and, and burdened for people? Because this is where Nehemiah is at. Nehemiah is just sitting there and he's broken and he's hurt. And so what does he do? He begins to pray. Before he ever takes action, before he ever makes a plan, he prays. I was reading this week about the attack on Pearl Harbor. When this attack took place in December of 1941, there was a man named Desmond Doss, a young man from Virginia, a mine worker. Very honestly, in the descriptions, a very uh, skinny, frail-looking guy. 
But he took the attack on Pearl Harbor very seriously. And Desmond Doss wanted to do something about it. He wanted to sign up to serve in the military, but he had a problem. As a Seventh-day Adventist, he had taken a vow to never take another human life, no matter what. True story. And so he enlisted anyway, but he enlisted as a medic. And he thought, Desmond Doss thought, as a medic, I can go on the scene and just help in the best way I can. But I vow, and he recalls this, I vow never to pick up a, a gun or a weapon, not even a combat knife, to defend myself. I won't do any of it. So he enlists as a medic, but after enlisting his battalion, they get the, the orders that they need to go to the island of Okinawa. And they are told that they have to scale a 400-foot cliff and then take the summit of the cliff from enemy um, com combatants. They have to seize it for America. And so, sure enough, he gets there, and he, his battalion, they ship off to Okinawa, and they get to this cliff, and they scale the 400-foot cliff. And when they get to the summit of that cliff, they are um, greeted by a firefight with enemy combatants, an incredible firefight that lasts for days and days and days. And immediately, as soon as the fight starts, 75 men are, are injured. And a couple days into this, more and more people are getting hurt. And a couple days into this firefight, there was a huge attack on American troops where more people were injured. And the rest of the American troops were pushed to the edge of this cliff. And they were faced with no other choice but to scale back down the cliff and get to the base of the cliff and regroup. And so that's what they did. So all these troops, they scaled to the bottom of this 400-foot cliff. And in their confusion of figuring out what are we going to do next. They look up and they see an injured soldier being roped down the 400 foot, and then they don't know what to do. So they look back up and another one's coming, and another one's coming, and they begin to piece the story together. The only people on the top of that hill are the enemy forces, injured Americans, and Desmond Doss, little Virginia mine worker. Five hours later, they determined that Desmond Doss had been running without any weapons into enemy fire, and had grabbed 75 U.S. injured soldiers, pulled them to the edge of the cliff, medically treated them, and roped them down the cliff to safety. When it was all done, and we were awarding him the, the, the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award any American can receive in our country, they asked him this question as they were awarding him. What was going through your head? What was going through your mind when that took place? And here's his response. He said, I just kept praying, please, Lord, please, Lord, help me save just one more. He said, I just kept praying over and over again, Lord, please, I just want to save one more. This is Nehemiah. I love that story. I don't know about you, but I re read that story. I was like, I love this. Why isn't this a movie? Like, this is awesome. This is incredible. Why do I love it? Because I love ordinary people that do extraordinary things when they team up with God. I love it. I'm just drawn in. I just, man, it's such an incredible story. And then I read Nehemiah, and I'm like, that's the same story. He's an ordinary guy who let his heart break for the things that breaks God's heart. And God's heart was broken over the state of his people, and Nehemiah's heart began to break over the state of God's people. And when his heart began to break, he was left with no other choice. I mean, he worked in, he was the cupbearer to the king. He tells us that at the end of the chapter. What that means is he worked for the king of the world at the time. And he would drink wine and he would eat food before the king drank wine or ate food so that if it was poisoned, Nehemiah would die, not the king. Great life, right? But it really was a great life because no one was threatening that king at the time. And so Nehemiah got to drink the finest wine in all the world and eat the finest food and live in the palace and, and he was treated well and he had all this wealth. And so why even feel burdened? See, Nehemiah was left with the only choice he had to do was I have to do something 
Because sitting back and doing nothing means I'll never sleep again. I'll never sleep again. I've got to do something about the state of God's people, and I've got to do something about being a witness to the lost people, or I'm never going to sleep. And I could sit in luxury and comfort for the rest of my days. I don't know if you've ever felt that burden. I, I've said this here recently in my home. My, my job in all of my relationships, every relationship is to prepare those other people in, in those relationships for eternity, for the millions and millions of years that they're going to live out their eternity. I, I said it this way to someone this week. My job as a husband is to prepare my wife for eternity, not retirement. That's the goal. And as I'm preparing her for the millions and millions of years she's going to live with Jesus, do I feel a burden for everybody else in my life the way I feel a burden for them? Everybody I encounter, because Nehemiah said, I can't sit here in my own comfort while people are suffering and hurting. I just can't do it anymore. But there's nothing he could do. He was trapped. He's in this kingdom working for this king, the most powerful person in the world. He doesn't have a choice but to sit still. So what does he do? As he sits, he begins to pray. There are three things that we can learn from his prayer but here's the thing. It can really be a powerful time for your prayer life. If you've ever wondered, I don't know how to pray. I'm not good at praying. I'm going to give you some direction. Nehemiah is going to give us all some direction about how we can just personally pray on a regular basis, genuinely. But then when God puts big burdens on your heart that become visions for what you want to accomplish, let this be a guide to check your heart to see where you're at in your prayer life for those things as well as just your everyday prayer life. So Nehemiah is sitting with all of this going on. He begins this prayer. And the first thing he does is, hey, the first thing I want to focus on when I pray is I want to have a right view of God. Before I think about anything else, Nehemiah says, I want to make sure that when I start praying that I have the proper view of God. And so this is how he does it. Chapter 1, verse 5, he said, then I said, Nehemiah said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I don't know if you see what's happening here, but there's not a whole lot going on that would uh, validate that prayer. People are scattered. The walls are torn down. Doesn't look like God's keeping his covenant with his people because they're all suffering and hurting. And yet in the midst of all of that pain, what does Nehemiah do? He says, in the midst of the suffering, God, you're good. He says, God, when I can't even see it because I'm hurting so bad, you're good. And God, when all seems lost, you're powerful, you're sovereign, and you're in control. And I may not feel it. I may not feel it, but I know it's true. And so he stops and says, before I talk about anything else, I want to say, God, you're good. And you're powerful. And I need to remind myself before I talk about anything else, who it is that I'm praying to. And I've had to check my own heart this week. Because all of my prayers don't start that way. Right? A lot of my prayers start with God I need, or God I want, or God... This is going on, and I, me, 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 I, I, I. And I've been forced to ask myself a question that, since you asked, I'm going to share with you so that you can ask yourself this question. Do the personal pronouns in your prayer life outnumber the proclaimed truths about who God is and what he's done? When you're praying, how often are you proclaiming how good he's been, how powerful he is? how he's delivered and how he's led. Is your prayer life a reflection of that or is it I, 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 me, me, me? Now here's the deal. God wants to hear the personal pronouns, but you need to pray the proclaimed truth because it has a profound impact on those personal pronouns. And Nehemiah says, when I start praying, the beginning thing I want to do is just recognize who I'm praying to. 
before I get into any vision or burden or broken heart or situation or desire or want, I'm going to stop and say, let me recognize whose presence I'm in. And so instead of just teaching it to you so that we can stand on a stage and, and do this, I want to practice this as a church. I want to pause in the middle of a sermon, and we're going to pray. If you're not comfortable with that, it's okay. You don't have to participate. It's totally fine. But I'm just going to pray, and I want to ask you to pray. And you can pray with the people next to you. You can sit silently. You can pray from your heart. It's okay to pray however you feel led to pray. But I'm going to pray, and I want us to stop as a church for a moment and just recognize whose presence we're in right now. I'm not going to ask him for things. I just want to stop and say, you're good. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. When I think about all that you've done and accomplished in my own life and in the lives of my friends and family members in this church, I am blown away by how good you are. Father, you are powerful. You set the stars in place. You let the sun shine. You brought the beautiful, cool weather this morning. You are powerful. Father, you are loving. You sent your son to suffer and die for us. You know the pain that we feel. You've experienced it. Jesus experienced temptation for us. You understand everything we're going through and feeling. And God, even when we can't see it, Father, you're good. And God, even when life isn't good to us, you're good. And Father, for those sitting in this room, that may, be, that may be really hard for them to see right now. May they understand that even in the midst of their darkest moment and their greatest pain, Father, when it doesn't seem possible for hope to be alive, may they understand that the God of the universe still holds the world in his hand. Father, we are grateful for your goodness and your power and your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah starts with a proper view of God, and then he shifts his his focus to having a proper view of us. You see, he still hasn't got into, and he's still not going to get into what he wants. You see, when I pray and I got a vision, not only does God hear about it, everybody else is going to hear about it. I'm an extrovert. We took the Myers-Briggs as a church staff. Myers-Briggs is a test that scales introvert or extrovert. 26 questions determine whether or not you're an introvert or an extrovert, okay? I got a score that kind of baffled the lady. I got 26 extrovert, zero introvert. It's weird. I'm wired that way. When I get a vision, I'm going after it. That's just the way that I... Now, what I oftentimes need to do in those moments... I need to pause and recognize that the vision shouldn't be mine. Right? Because if I have a proper view of God and a proper view of myself, I'm left with no other option but to be humbled. And so Nehemiah has a proper view of us. This is what he says. He says, Father, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you have, you have gave your servant Moses. So Nehemiah begins next by, God, you're awesome and powerful. And then he begins to confess the sins of the people around him. They're sinful, and they have sins. And he begins to go into those sins. And the whole point of this is to recognize that he can't have this lofty high view of himself. Why? Because the higher view you have of yourself, the harder it is to show compassion to other people. The more you think of you, the less you're going to be capable of thinking of others. Put it this way. If you're a great parent, if your kids are awesome because you're an awesome parent, you're going to have a hard time showing compassion to people whose kids don't behave. You really will. You're going to have a really hard time with it. Why? Because if you're like, my kids are awesome, and it's because, well, let's face it, 
I'm awesome, right? If that's you, now you wouldn't say it out loud, but come on, come on. And I'm great because my kids are great because I'm great. And then you're going to encounter someone whose kids don't behave or make bad choices. And what your thought is going to be is if they would just do what I did, their kids wouldn't behave that way. If they would just act the way that I acted, if they would just follow protocol, then their kids would be fine because I nailed it and that's how I did it. If they would just do what I did, everything would be great. That's not compassion. You're going to have a really hard time loving on people whose kids don't behave the way you think they should behave. What about finances? If you've done well financially because you're good, because you worked hard, you saved, you invested, you, you budgeted, you stayed out of debt, and you're just so good, you're going to have a hard time having compassion on people whose finances are suffering. A really hard time. But if instead you're great at finances because God has been great to you and he's blessed you and it's a blessing so that you can be a blessing, that changes the game and you're able to have compassion. What about morality? You see people living outside of Christ, not the way that Jesus would want them to live, but because you're nailing it, you Pharisee, uh, then you're going to look at them. <laughs> you're going to look at them and you're going to say, if they would just do what I do, I follow Jesus. I'm awesome. I'm living this Christian life. I listen to K-Love and shop at family Christian stores every other day. I'm, I'm great. And they're not doing so great. What about them? But if your life is being blessed and you're honoring the Lord with your life because the Lord has been so good to you, because he's been so gracious to you, that's a game changer. And so Nehemiah begins to bring the attention to have a proper view of yourself in your prayer life. Start with a proper view of God. Go to a proper view of yourself. And so I don't want to just teach it. I want to practice it. We're going to pray together and recognize our own need for a Savior before our Father. Let's pray. Father, we have, like David prayed at the beginning of the service, we have dishonored you. And God, I'm ashamed of some of the sin in my own heart, some of the thoughts in my mind. I'm ashamed of it at times, God. We've dishonored you with our actions, with our lives, with our thoughts, with our words. And God, we want to come before you and confess that sin. We don't deserve to be used by you. It, the only way, Father, as Paul writes, that we can be ambassadors is if we are a new creation. And the only way we're a new creation is if you make us new. We don't deserve it. So, Father, we come before you and recognize our own weaknesses and faults. And we find hope in that you will provide strength and healing. And we find that hope in Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen. Now he shifts his, fo his focus at the end of this prayer to the promises of God. I love this prayer. I love it because it teaches me I need to pray more recognizing God. I need to pray more, understanding my own faults. I need to pray more, focusing on the promises that God's already made. Because Nehemiah knows if I'm going to live out this vision, it's got to line up with the Word of God. It has to. It shouldn't just be my vision. So I'm going to base it on what God has already said. And so he continues in verse 8. He says, remember the instructions. He's not asking God to remember like God forgot. He's just proclaiming the truth of God's promises. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if, you, if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'm going to gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants whom delighted, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I love what Nehemiah did here. He now shifts his attention to what God has already said is true. 
And I think a lot of us would benefit if we wouldn't just think about our own plans, but we would go to God's word and we would focus on the promises that God has already made. You see, Nehemiah was praying scripture. God, you've already said this is going to be true, and I just want you to know, Father, I'm available. I'm ready to go. Because it's already been stated as truth. It's not a new thing. It's just what God already knows to be true. God has already said it to be true. And Nehemiah is simply claiming that truth and preparing himself for action. You know, I think many of us would do good to focus on the prayers, our prayers, on the promises God has already made. Did you know that 90% of evangelical Christians in our country will never share their faith with another person outside of their immediate family? We lined up 10 Christians, nine of them won't tell anyone about Jesus if they're not directly related to him. I think they might if they would remember what God promised to do when he sent them on that mission. But I think many of us, we separate the mission of God from the promises of God. So let's get a little reminder here. Did you know that the Bible has called each and every one of us to live on mission? That's Matthew 28. You can take a picture of the screen if you want to remember these. The Bible has called each and every one of us to live on mission. You are called as a follower of Jesus to live on mission for Jesus. But in the very same passage, he promises that we're not alone on this mission. And I think many people forget about that. God doesn't call you to share your faith with your neighbor or your coworker or someone you haven't met or someone you don't know without also promising to be there with you in that moment. You don't live out God's mission by yourself. You live it out with his presence. We're promised the power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. He not only is with you, he's in you, directing you. The Holy Spirit will give you a power to be a witness. We're also promised that the Spirit will give us power, love, and self-control. You know those moments when you're sharing and someone disagrees with you? Uh-huh, those moments where self-control is not the first thing on your mind. If you'll remember the promises of God, it could be. We're promised that when we don't know what to pray and we're broken and we're at our dark, darkest, lowest moment that the Spirit of God is praying for us. You see, friends, we need to remember the promises of God because you cannot live on mission for God without a burden for lost people, for God's people, and you can never be prepared for that mission without prayer. Prayer is absolutely essential to being prepared to live out the vision that God would place on your heart. And I think it's the most overlooked step in living on mission. We get an idea, we get a thought, we, we get excited, we're creative, and we want to run with it. And we've never stopped to pause and check and see if God is really the source of that vision. Look, I want you to remember this. It's not going to come on the screen, but I would ask you to write it down if you're taking notes. Prayer precedes action, always, in the mission of God. Prayer precedes action, every single time in the mission of God. We need to be focused on being a praying people. And when we pray, we need to focus on how good and powerful and great our God is. That because of Jesus, do you, does it ever just weigh on you? Don't let this get old. Jesus died for you, resurrected from the dead, and because of that truth, you can be in the very presence of the creator of the universe? Like, I don't, that blows my mind. The, the God who holds every, put the stars in place and, and hung the sun in its place and, and produces all this beauty and incredible things around us has said, I will allow you into my presence through my son and I will spend time with you. And I think we overlook that. Why? Because we don't spend time in his presence. Look, when I met my wife, I was scared to death to introduce myself to her. Terrified. Uh, we were in college together. She was She's hot and she's awesome. And I'm like, oh, this girl's so cool. And I, oh, but I'm so scared. And she's great and I'm not. And ah, I didn't know what to do. I was scared to death. 12 years later, not so intimidated. She's still awesome. She's still hot. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. 
Time spent in the presence of people changes everything. The more time I've spent with my wife, I am more comfortable with her than I am with any other human being on this planet. It's because of the time I've spent with her. And the same is true about God. Many of us want to know where God is in our life. And the question I have for you is, are you spending time with him? Because time spent in the presence of your leader, your king, changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for how you're working and moving and changing things and how good you are and how incredible you are, God. I thank you for this church and all that you're doing in this community. I thank you for people that desire to live on mission and not just sit in a seat. I I thank you, Father, for uh, how you've worked in the lives and the testimonies of the people in this place. I thank you that people in this place are understanding that we are all missionaries. We are all called to live and represent Jesus in every single part of our lives. Father, I thank you that when we come together, we're refreshed and we're encouraged. But God, if we're honest, we're human, and there are people that are suffering and experiencing pain. There are those of us that feel scared to live on mission because we don't know what it looks like exactly. Those are those of us that feel guilty because of our prayer life, and we confess that before you and ask you for your forgiveness, that you would restore the hope in our heart. That, Father, because of that truth, we would come back to the realization that the creator of the universe wants to spend time with us. He wants to use us. And every day we wake up, we've got purpose because of him. So, God, my prayer for each and every person here is that we would begin to understand we're not dismissed at the end of a service. We're sent. We walk out of this place. We have a job to do, but a helper to go with us and live in us. And, God, that we can make the biggest difference in the world through Jesus. And so we offer this prayer to you in his name. Amen. Let me uh, be clear. Nehemiah was a foreshadowing of a much greater leader. Nehemiah had a burden on his heart for lost people. Nehemiah spent time with the Father, and Nehemiah took action to save people on a far smaller scale than Jesus, who had a burden for lost people, who spent time with the Father and took action to save the world by dying on a cross and resurrecting from the dead. Jesus is a far greater Nehemiah, and he's the reason we're here. And if you don't know him, and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, we would like nothing more than to sit and talk to you about what that looks like. But maybe you do, and you love what this church is doing, and you, you want to talk more about becoming a member, getting involved. That's great. But here's the deal. Here's the other awesome part. This next song we're going to sing, we didn't even plan it, but it's awesome, and it fits perfectly with this passage. So maybe you just need to stay where you are, stand with us, and let this song be a powerful prayer to where you're at and where you're going next. So let's stand together bring our attention to Jesus.